Now, I'll turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And even though our focus is on verses 7 through 10, we need to begin in verse 1 to read together the entire, the entire section. <clears throat> Pardon me. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning with verse 1. Let's pray before reading. Almighty God and our Father, we sit here tonight as needy people. We need Jesus. We need Him every moment. We, this day, have sinned against you. We, in thought, word, and deed, have been impure. We, Father, in and of ourselves, are undone. How thankful we are that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. And that you use word and sacrament, the worship, the gathering of your people, our fellowship together, and the ongoing trials of life and joys to make us to be Christ-like. We pray that you will take this text and instruct our hearts as disciples of Jesus, needy every day of Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 2 Corinthians 12, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Well, sometimes we long for things to be different than they are. We enter into the Lord's presence and we say, Lord, this is a hard, hard thing that has come upon me. I don't want this in my life. I want things to change. It may be a family situation. It may be a marital issue. It may be the the temptations that come from a certain quarter. It may be the pain that we experience in the body. Whatever it may be, we come to the Lord and we say, Lord, this is a hard, hard trial. Please change this. This is something that I find I cannot bear. And we pray. And God always answers the prayers of his people. There is not one prayer that you pray that is not answered for his glory and for your good. He always hears and answers you when you pray. But sometimes God's answer to your prayer is no. In my fatherly love and care for you, my answer 
to this particular prayer is no. Now, can we know why, at least in the broad sense, that God sometimes answers our prayers this way? What does our Father intend for us? Well, I think this passage helps us to answer those questions. Now, boasting was common in the Roman world and in Pharisaic Judaism as well. We have many, many instances of this in Roman writing, and certainly you find it in the pages of the New Testament regarding the Pharisees. They were boasting in those things that we would call the flesh. Paul had been accused of weakness by the super apostles that were influencing the church at Corinth. Well, he says that's right. I admit it. I agree with you. Uh, I'm, I'm just weak. And so the Apostle Paul inverts the typical boasting of the day, and he boasts not in his strengths, not in his gifts, but he boasts in his weaknesses and in his disappointments. If you have ever, and I'm sure most all of you have, if you have ever been exposed to that most distasteful thing of having to fill out a resume, I often wonder how Paul the Apostle would have done this. What if he had gone to Mission to North America and he was applying to be a church planter. Well, you know, you're supposed to put your best foot forward and to say, here are my strengths, and this is why I think I can plan a church. But what would Paul the Apostle have said? Well, you know, I'm just weak. I get beaten up everywhere I go. (laughs) Every town I go to, well, the Lord does establish some churches, but they're just weak little things with a few people in them. They're hardly self-sustaining. You know, I, I really can't think of why in the world you would ask me to be a church planter. Well, that's Paul. That's what he's doing. That's his approach to things. The Apostle Paul, you know, was a brilliant man. He could have had many, many degrees after his name, but I think the degree that he would have boasted in was his SS degree, sinner saved. Well, the first thing we see when we come to this text is that that Paul is tempted to pride. Paul's temptation to pride, his apostleship, as we have said, is under attack. Now, He had greater gifts than the super apostles that were opposing him. He was an outstanding individual, Paul the Apostle. He had great natural gifts and great gifts by grace. But the Apostle says, what visions and revelations I have had. You see, the super apostles were claiming such things. They had great visions and they had great revelations. Well, what super revelations, what great visions has the Apostle Paul had? Well, he says, what visions and revelations that I have had. I, I boast, not in those, but I boast in my weakness. Paul could claim amazing visions and revelations. He says in verse 1, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. And then he speaks of himself, but not in first person. And he says, 14 years prior, I had a vision that was absolutely spectacular. Now note that he's only bringing it up now because there is reason to do so for the sake of the gospel. For 14 years, evidently, the Apostle Paul has kept this to himself. 14 years prior then, I had this spectacular revelation, and he did not seek the experience, nor was he permitted to pass it on to others. He saw things, he says, of which it is not permissible for a man to speak. And so he addresses it in third person. He wants to point to Paul, who now stands in weakness, rather than Paul, who stands in visions and revelations and those things that the super apostles and their followers would think as strengths. Ecstatic experiences accredit no ministry. 
If a minister stands before you and he says, my ministry is accredited because I work miracles, my ministry is accredited because I speak in tongues, my ministry is accredited because I have visions and revelations, or if a man says, my ministry is accredited because I cast out demons and do many wonderful works in his name, that man is not speaking the truth because that does not accredit any man's ministry. What accredits a man's ministry is that he loves the truth, come what may, and he preaches that truth. And as with Paul the Apostle, he boasts in his weaknesses. Christ commissioned Paul. He was not commissioned because he had great experiences. He was not commissioned because he had mountaintop opportunities of being with the Lord. It was Christ himself that commissioned Paul the Apostle. And so about what does he now boast? Well, in verse 5 he says, On behalf of this man I will boast, again speaking in third person of Paul who had the visions, but on my own behalf I will not boast except in my weaknesses. The greatest evidence of what I am saying, that what I speak is true, that I speak for Christ, that I'm commissioned by the Lord, the greatest evidence is not my vision. It is not my experience. It is my weakness. And of that weakness, we only need go to the prior chapter, chapter 11, to read of what some of those weaknesses were all about. He says in verse 21 of chapter 11 and following, To my shame, I must say, we are too weak for that. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. You want to hear some boasting, says Paul? I'll boast for you. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. Now, here are his real credentials. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and depart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? How did Paul arrive at this? How is it that the Apostle Paul does not boast in his gifts or experiences, great though they were, but the Apostle Paul boasts in his weakness? What kept him from feeling, you know what? I've seen things you've never seen, you peons down there. I've had great experiences, don't you know? I've had visions. I've seen things that it's not, it's not allowable for a, a human being to repeat to another human being. Who are you to come against me and speak this way? You've had no experiences to equal mine. You've had, you've had no visions to equal mine. You have no gifts to equal mine. Paul never said that and never thought that way. Paul boasts in his weakness. How did he come to that? Well, he came to that by grace because he understood that all of these wondrous experiences that he had had with the Lord were given to him by the hand of the Lord. But this grace 
was driven way down deep into Paul the Apostle's heart by what he calls the thorn in the flesh. It was driven down deep in his heart through hardship and toil and trial and tribulation. And that brings us to the second thing we want to see, God's antidote to pride. What kept him from pride? Paul says it was the thorn in the flesh. He boasts about what humbled him, not what exalted him. And so he says in verse 7, so to keep me from being too elated, in other words, to keep me from pride, by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to, give, to keep me from being too elated, too puffed up or proud. The fact that we cannot precisely identify what this thorn in the flesh is, I think is because God wants us to be able to, di- to identify with the Apostle Paul whatever our thorn in the flesh may be, whatever our weaknesses and troubles may be. You could, you could actually print a book, a very sizable one, on all of the various arguments of scholars that think they can identify what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. And some of them are very, very convincing. But in the end, we just don't know. And he did not tell us, and God did not reveal it. And I think that's for your good and for mine, too. For can you not, can you not sympathize, empathize with Paul when he speaks about the thorn in the flesh and doesn't tell us precisely what that means? Whatever it was, it was pain that interfered with the enjoyment of life and drained the Apostle Paul of energy that undoubtedly he felt he needed for the service of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Visions lead to elation. Thorns lead to humiliation. So when God gives to any man great gifts or gives to any man great experiences with himself, you can... You can always count on a thorn in the flesh also being given so that we are not puffed up with great pride. The thorn given by God through the instrumentality ultimately of the Lord is given from the Lord through the instrumentality of Satan. He tells us it was a messenger of Satan to harass me. Satan desired to hinder But by draining pride from the Apostle Paul, Satan really advanced the gospel. And behind it all is the the knowledge that the devil is God's devil. He's accomplishing his purpose. And so what seems to be destructive in our lives is transformed into victory by God's sovereign grace. Now, by the way, this is a present tense, a messenger of Satan to harass me. It's ongoing in Paul's life. Whatever this thorn in the flesh is, is something that continues as he writes to the people of God here at Corinth. And so what we read of in verse 7 is his greatest constant ongoing trial, and he says it was a gift. Did you notice it? He says in verse 7, So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me. It was a gift. Paul can say, as he examines his life, with all of the great visions and revelations and the gifts that God has given to him, so that he would not be too elated, so that he would not be overly puffed up, so that he might not think of himself more highly than he ought, this thorn in the flesh that is given to me, is a gift. Now, do you think that way? 
Most of us don't. When the thorn in the flesh comes into our lives, the trial, the tribulation, the hardship, I don't think the first thing that comes to our minds is, this is a real gift from God. No, we think otherwise. We think this is something that we really want out of our lives, but we do not treat it as a gift from above. But a gift is what Paul says. This great, this tremendous trial was a gift that came from the hand of a sovereign God, yes, even through the instrumentality of Satan. That leads us to the third thing that we want to see, and that is the results of this gift, the results of the thorn in the flesh that was given to the Apostle Paul. And the results are at least twofold. The first result of this thorn given to Paul is that it drove him to his knees. And he says to us in verse 8, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. It's right to get on your knees. It's right to fellowship with God. It's right to plead with Him. It's right to say, Lord, if it is your will for this thing in my life to be taken away, then take it away. Paul the Apostle was driven to his knees. It was not God's will to give Paul health and prosperity, however. It was God's will that he continue on, remember a present tense in verse 7, that he continually have this thorn in the flesh to buffet him. My wife showed me recently a clip of a really disgusting interview between Joel Osteen being interviewed by Oprah Winfrey. It was an interesting combination. And it was about the... um, the preaching of Joel Osteen, and she was very sympathetic to his preaching. And uh, both of them were saying, we just can't understand people that would have a God that would bring trouble into our lives. Now, that's not a quote. I'm just summarizing the ideas. I mean, what kind of a God doesn't want you to be prosperous? But you see, that's not the God of the Bible. This idea that that, uh, the God of the Bible is someone who always wants his people to prosper... Uh, That's simply not what the scriptures teach. It's a lie of the devil. Paul did not persist then indefinitely in this prayer. He came before the Lord undoubtedly passionately praying three times that the Lord would remove this from his life. And he didn't say, Lord, now let me tell you how it should be. I prayed three times and you haven't answered and I I want you to know, Lord, this is really the way you ought to do things. He didn't say that. No, he prayed three times, and then he came to the conclusion, this is not what God wants for me. He wants me to have this thorn in the flesh. Because the Lord made it clear that there was purpose in the thorn. There was purpose in the thorn. It drove him to his knees. It humbled him. Have you ever had any experience in life, any pain, any suffering that is ongoing that has driven you to your knees and maybe transformed your prayers so that in the beginning you were praying, Lord, take this thing from me. And by the time you have grown and matured, you are saying, Lord, make something of me by this experience. Now that's what the Lord wants in our lives. It is not always his will to remove the thorn. It is always his will in the lives of his people that we come to the point that we can say, Lord, by this trial, this pain, this suffering, 
conform me to the image of your son and make me more who you want me to be. That is certainly, certainly, certainly the experience of my own life. The second result is that the Apostle Paul boasts in grace. He says in verse 9, But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He boasts in grace. Our prayers are always heard. And when God says no, we boast in grace, just as when he says yes. Old Ralph Erskine had this to say, I'm heard when answered soon or late, yea, heard when I no answer get, most kindly answered when refused, and treated well when harshly used. That's good Christianity. Elder Aiken pointed out to me this morning, knowing this text was coming, a prayer in the Valley of Vision, which I think most of you have. It's found on page 138, and part of it reads this way. I thank thee that, my, that many of my prayers have been refused. I have asked amiss and do not have. I have prayed from lusts and have been rejected. I have longed for Egypt and been given a wilderness. Go on with thy patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting me to accept it. Purge me from every false desire, every base aspiration, everything contrary to thy rule. Can you pray that way? That's what the Lord is doing in your life, leading you so that you may pray like that. Well, the answer given to Paul the Apostle, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul the Apostle is saying, my weakness magnifies God's strength. My weakness magnifies God's strength. Now, what is it, after all, if you, take, um, if you take a chainsaw and you go to a great oak tree and you cut it down? But if you take a penknife and you go to a great oak tree and you cut it down, you say, what power? So God doesn't make his people to be great chainsaws to cut down mighty oaks. He uses us in his church and in his kingdom as penknives in his hand. He does the work, he has the power, and he does great things, even though we are just little, frail instruments in his hand. You know, when we read the book of Job, we see something very much like this. And the book of Job is a very long book, and it's a very difficult book in places to understand, but when we come to the end of Job, we find that Job is shown after all of his suffering, something of the greatness of God and his sovereignty. And essentially, Job ends with God saying, Look, Job, here's the answer to your question about why all of these things. The answer is, you don't need to know. It's sufficient for you that I know. Now, that's what God is doing in Paul's life here and does in our lives as well. The more deficiency I see in myself, the more sufficiency I see in my Savior. This world is not my home. The power of the flesh focuses me on my accomplishments. My weakness focuses me on grace and my heavenly heavenly home.
God is weaning us from this world by these trials and tribulations. Fourthly, let's see in this text the call to contentment. If God says no, what then? Well, there are numbers of responses. If God says no, then sometimes we become cynical. If God says no, then sometimes we are just exasperated. God, why don't you do this in my life? And you are completely wrapped up in wanting God to do what you think his will ought to be. Or we can become self-pitying, looking like little lost puppies, always always concerned with with myself and that things aren't going well for me, just self-pity. But you know, there's another option. You can submit. And I don't mean submit grudgingly, but I mean submit with a good will, with a heart for God. Now, Paul joyfully submitted to the thorn in the flesh. He was not resigned half-heartedly. He wanted God's will regardless of the cost. The truth about me, he concluded, is I really am weak, and I'm content with that. As long as I'm the Lord's, the Lord will use me in my weakness, then I'm content. Contentment, not for Paul's sake, but for Christ's sake. Verse 10, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So if persecutions and hardships and calamities are God's will for my life, then says Paul the Apostle, I will rejoice because he is making me to be Christ-centered, and Christ is honored. So the Christian that does not realize his privileges finds the slightest burdens overwhelming, and even the slightest affliction distracts him from duty. I don't know who said this, but I remembered it. Every molehill is a mountain. Every scratch on the hand is a stake in the heart. Every wave is a sea when we don't understand our privileges in Christ. But how different for Christians who do understand what we have in Jesus and who Jesus is, who realize that they are rich in grace and that sometimes God's answer to us is no, so that you may find your sufficiency in Him and find that your fellowship with Him is really what matters in life. Now, the fifth thing I want you to see is living in the strength of the resurrected Lord. How did Paul go on if he was so weak? How was it possible for him to preach when he could undoubtedly hardly stand because of the beatings that he had had? How was it possible for him to go to the next place when he could pretty well assume that was going to happen there also? How could he go on when he had whatever his thorn in the flesh was? Well, he lived in the strength of the resurrected Lord. This weak Paul is strong because Christ has risen from the dead. In chapter 13, verse 4, he says, For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. Now that's Paul's thinking always. He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. And I am crucified in him, and I am weak, and I now live in the power of the resurrected Christ. You are powerful in Christian living when abandoning your own strength, you live in the power of the resurrected Lord. Paul in 2 Corinthians 4 
has a great deal to say about this, and I only mention it in passing. He speaks of caring about the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in those to whom he ministers. But he says in verse 14 of chapter 4, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. As Professor Dick Gaffin so often says, you are no more resurrected in your innermost being or you are as resurrected in your innermost being as you ever will be. Risen in Christ, alive in Christ. Yes, your body is not yet raised and transformed, but at the core of your being, you are as raised in Christ as you ever will be. Live in that reality. And when we live that way, I'm weak, he is strong. I'm weak, he is sufficient. I have nothing but him, and he is raised from the dead, and I live in the power of his resurrection. Then you can know that nothing in your life is hopeless. We have no right to say, woe is me, I'm hopeless when Christ, the risen Lord, is our master. Then you can know that no trial in life is meaningless because it does have meaning and purpose under the sovereign hand of God. And one of those meanings we can know, it is to show the sufficiency of Christ even though we are incredibly powerless and weak. No experience or sorrow or suffering is wasted. But every sorrow of the Christian, every experience of the Christian, every weakness of the Christian, every suffering that we endure as believers has meaning and is never wasted. And all is suffused with life because Jesus was raised from the dead. Let me tell you something. Some of the sweetest moments I've ever had with saints of God have been when they are weak on their deathbed. They can't get up. They can barely whisper a word. They have nothing to give, nothing to offer, but praise to Jesus. That is incredibly strong. It is wonderfully powerful. It's a power that, that amazes the world. And there is a huge difference between the death of a Christian and the dying experience of the Christian, and the death of an unbeliever, one who knows Christ and one who does not. What happy people then we should be. By happy, you know that I don't mean something flip. I mean happy in the midst of sorrows and in the midst of our trials. Well, here's a little Spurgeon story for you. I just read it last year and read it again just this week. I was having a talk with a man who was young, rich, and in the enjoyment of every good thing this world could give him, and who maintained that religion was a melancholy thing. I cannot stand your Christian people, he said. Their religion does not make them cheerful or agreeable, and they're always in trouble, moaning and groaning and complaining. Come along with me, my friend, I said. We will visit one of your complaining Christians. I took him to a wretched, fireless garret where beside the empty grate sat a poor old woman doubled up with rheumatism and groaning with the pain. Oh, she said, it is so bad and it never gets better. Well, my friend, I said, look at this young man. He's rich, he is healthy and strong, he has every pleasure that earth can give him, and he is without God in the world. Tell me now, 
Would you change with him? Change with him? She said. I hope you see the point. But oh my friend, if you are not in Christ Jesus, you too will have your thorns in the flesh. You will have your suffering. You will have your pain. You will go through the the depths of hard experiences in a fallen world, just as a Christian does. But you will not go through with this perspective. It will not be possible. Do you have this perspective? Do you want this perspective? Has the Holy Spirit so worked in your heart that you can see the difference between that old woman at her great, her fireless great in all of her pain, and that rich young man, that she, she is wealthy, and he is poor, that she is strong in her weakness, and he is weak in his strength. What is true of you? You know, there is one thorn, terrible thorn, that the people of God can say we will never endure, and that is the terrible thorn, the terrible pain, the terrible suffering of the condemning wrath of God, because Jesus Christ bore that pain, that sorrow, that thorn in the place of all who trust in him. Will you trust him? Will you come to him and believe in Jesus? May the Lord bless the exposition of his word.